chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Before we consider God's word further together, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this letter which has been preserved for our benefit in the canon of Scripture. Thank you that you give us your Spirit who helps us understand this passage of Scripture indeed speaks to our hearts in a real and active and living way today. Please do that for each of us this morning. Encourage us on this road and this journey of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so therefore, do that good work through this passage we pray to your glory. Amen. I bought a laptop about three years ago now uh, and it had Windows 7 as its operating system. Uh, As an operating system, it's been reasonably well behaved, I have to say, as far as operating systems go, although of course uh, nothing is perfect. It's been a bit slow at times. Uh, Sometimes it's left programs hanging. But at the bottom right of the screen, for the last few months, has been this tantalizing icon. There it is. And of course, from time to time, my cursor strayed over it to find out what it was all about. And I learned that actually, I was entitled to a free upgrade to Windows 10. Well, to be honest, uh, I was a bit nervous about uh, going over to the unknown. However, uh, when I looked into it, I was advised that if I didn't like Windows 10, I had the option of going back to good old Windows 7. Well, well, that was a no-brainer. So a few days ago, I finally took the plunge. And now I'm in the new and wonderful world of Windows 10. And believe me, having upgraded, I'm not looking back. I'm really not. It's working great. Uh, The graphics seem to be a little simpler, which means everything seems to run a little faster, which is what I really, really want, because it sends me bonkers when those programs start hanging. And I'm now convinced Windows 10 is better and best. Why do I want to go back to the old system? Well, our title for this Hebrew sermon series is Better and Best, because the letter was written to some Christians who are thinking about going back, not to Windows 7, but to their previous religion before they became Christians. And this letter is written to convince them that Christ is better and best. It's saying, don't go back. What you have in Jesus is absolutely priceless. They would be nincompoops to return to the old ways. Well, uh, what I want to do this morning is firstly uh, to start by getting into the sandals of these first century Christians to whom the letter was written. For as we understand more of their situation and their struggles, it will help us to see more clearly how this letter 
should speak to us today. In my preparation, actually, I found it very inspiring to dig down a little bit and to piece together something of their original situation from clues in the letter. Uh, some of these will be quite familiar. Uh, some of us will be quite familiar with various verses in Hebrews, but maybe we've never really understood them in the light of the background context. So that's the first thing we're going to do. Uh, we're going to think about the situation uh, to which this letter addresses. And then we'll spend some time, the remainder of our time, digging down into these quite remarkable opening four verses. So that's where we're going. So let's think a little bit more about the background to the letter. What was going on at the time? Now, we don't know who wrote the letter. In those days, normally, uh, the recipients of the letter and the author would be identified in the opening lines, uh, but not in this letter. However, the closing lines indicate that the author probably was quite close with the apostles. Uh, look at chapter 13, verse 23. He says there, I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. Now we know that Timothy was a close associate of the apostles, uh, the apostle Paul. And so therefore, some in the early church actually credited this letter to uh, Barnabas, uh, some to Apollos, although we cannot be certain. However, we can be reasonably sure that the author circulated in that inner circle with the apostles. Now, what do we know about the recipients, those to whom the letter was written? Firstly, where were they located? Where did they live? Here again, we don't know for sure. But a good case has been made for them being in or close to Rome. We get a possible clue in the closing paragraph where the author conveys the greetings of several Italian Christians who were there with him. Chapter 13, verse 24. It says, those from Italy send you their greetings. So it's quite likely that he's writing to people who are in Italy, probably in or close to Rome. Uh, next, when was the letter written? Probably in the mid-60s AD. Uh, how do we know this? Well, as you'll see in future weeks, uh, at various points in the letter, the writer will talk about the Jewish sacrificial system. And he talks about it in such a way that it's still up and running. Uh, but we know, of course, that the sacrificial system ceased in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple. So it's likely that the letter was written uh, pre-70 AD, most likely in the mid-60s. What about the circumstances of these people to whom it's written? Well, as you read through the letter, it becomes very clear that these are a group of Jewish Christians. Uh, when you read through the letter, you see it's packed with um, references to the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, it talks lots about uh, Moses, about the law, about the sacrificial system. It's, it's delving deep into the background of the Jews. And so it's probably written to believers who themselves are Jews. We also learn from the letter, they're in a hard place. Uh, we know from the letter they've already suffered for their faith. Uh, as the writer recalls in chapter 10, uh, verses 32 to 34. 
Uh, let me read it to you. He says, uh, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possessions. So, they've already been through a hard time in the past. And it's probably actually, it could well be referring back to uh, 49 AD, when things got really nasty for Jewish Christians. It was at that time when the Jews threw the Jewish Christians out of the synagogue. Uh, riots ensued, and many people were arrested. Uh, as a result, uh, Emperor, Emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome. So therefore, things have been hard in the past, but they were going to get worse in the future. You see, if those earlier days referred to are indeed the, those days of Claudius, under Emperor Claudius in 49 AD, then the present-day sufferings that now beckon are even darker, because now we have Emperor Nero on the throne. And it's 15 years later. Uh, as chapter 12, verse 4 reveals, none of them have yet died for their faith. Uh, 12 verse 4 says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. However, under Nero, arrest and death would become an awful possibility for Christians. And we know, of course, that in uh, 64 AD, martyrdom became a reality for many Christians living in Rome. So this small group of Jewish Christians, there they are in Rome, they'd be feeling scared and scarred. And there is evidence in the letter that the pressure is already getting to them. It seems that some have already drawn back from going to church, if you like, from meeting together with other believers. Hence, uh, chapter 10, verse 25. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. You see, there was a real danger that these Christians would conclude that the cost of following Jesus is just too much. And there would be a strong temptation for them to just let go of Jesus and to slip back into their old ways, to their old religion, to go back to Judaism. As we know from history, Christians arrested by the Roman authorities at this time were offered release if they would publicly renounce Christ. Maybe the, the writer of the letter had this in view uh, in chapter 6, verse 4, when he says the following. It is impossible for those who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. So, there we have it. That probably gives us a bit of an insight into the situation of these Christians to whom the letter was written. And so now we come to the purpose of the letter. Why was it written? It was an encourage, to encourage them. Don't fall away. Don't give up on Jesus. 
Press on in your Christian faith. He wants them to have a steadfast love and a wonderfully sound loyalty to the Lord Jesus. What we need to ask as we read the letter is this. Of what relevance is it to us today? Well, uh, in some countries of the world today, of course, such as Iraq and Syria, as we know from our news, this letter would speak very directly into the situation of Christians living in those countries. Uh, The daily threats and hardships they face for their faith would be very similar to these Christians in the first century. Violence, the possibility of losing their homes, their jobs, their loved ones, even their lives. It is a stark reality in some countries today. But if we're honest, of course, it's not reality for us here in 21st century Australia. Uh, We live in a Western democracy, which wonderfully upholds the rights of religious freedom. Uh, Our waking thought each morning is not the fear of attack or arrest for our faith. And yet, Hebrews, this letter, is of vital importance for us today. Why? Because the point where it intersects with us is this. We still face temptations to stop following Jesus, just as those first century believers did. Sadly, it has always been the case that some who profess Christian faith do in due course fall away. Uh, Maybe you know some. Tragically, I know some who do. Maybe the cost becomes too great in terms of the restrictions on their personal freedom. Maybe they're given a hard time for their faith by their friends or by their family. Uh, It's a sobering statistic which maybe you're aware of, maybe you've heard it before, that 80% of teenagers in a church youth group will not be professing Christian faith by the time they're in their 30s. Tragically, many do fall away. And the slipping away from Christ may be subtle and it may be gradual. Like a boat slipping its moorings, we may spiritually drift. Uh, We may no longer prioritise getting to church. The priority of Christian fellowship fades. Maybe God's word no longer has that vital role of shaping our daily thoughts and lives as it used to do. Maybe our prayer lives start to wither to the point of extinction. And finally, drifting may result in ditching. We reach the point where, although we still say we're a Christian, there is actually no longer any spiritual reality. Is that not a danger for all who would claim a Christian faith? So, how does the writer encourage these Christians to keep going as Christians, to keep following Christ no matter what the cost, even the cost of their own lives? Well, he does it in two ways. He does it in two ways. Firstly, by wooing. And secondly, by warning. I don't know if you have the gift of woo. Uh, don't know if I do, uh, being able to convey something to someone so that it's irresistibly attractive. Well, the writer of Hebrews has the gift of woo because he paints a picture of Jesus that is stunning. And he does so 
to warm our hearts so that we treasure Christ even more, ultimately, than our own lives. Wooing. And we're going to encounter the first big woo section today when we get to these first four verses. But he doesn't just woo. He also warns. And the letter contains, contains five warning sections about what happens if, tragically, we renounce faith in Christ. The loss of all hope of heaven, loss of all hope of eternal life, leaving only the grim spectre of God's final judgment. So, let's go back to the first century AD. Let's imagine this small group of frightened and faltering Jewish Christians. The question that lies hidden in the recesses of their minds is this. Is it really worth continuing to follow Jesus? The letter arrives, this letter which we're reading today. And the word is sent out. A letter has been sent to us. And so the congregation gathers, maybe only 15 or 20 of them. And the first four verses leave them staggered. The first four verses stretch their minds as to who this Jesus is in whom they've put their faith. Uh, time does not allow us to, to look into all of them, but we're going to do what we can in the remaining, four, the remaining time, just to dig down a little bit and try and sense a bit of the wonder and the awe of what these verses tell us about the Lord Jesus Christ. Firstly, the writer says that in Jesus we hear the very voice of God speaking to us direct. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but uh, there's a great film called Contact. Uh, it was released in 1997. It's a science fiction movie uh, starring Jodie Foster. Uh, Jodie in the film is Dr. Ellie Arroway, who is a brilliant astrophysicist. And her life's passion and quest is the search for extraterrestrial life. Uh, she faces funding problems and cynicism from within the scientific community. Yet, against all odds, she manages to continue her research down at the Deep Space Radio Antenna Station in New Mexico. Uh, four years pass with no results. And then one evening, whilst listening intently on her headset, Ellie picks up a powerful signal. It turns out to be a prime number pattern emanating from the star Vega. When Ellie breaks the news, it is confirmed by other astronomers all over the world. And it's a strong, pulsating power, much like a beating heart. Uh, the signal is recorded and it's analysed. And a short time later, it is found that interlaced within the signal are 60,000 pages of digital data. And they contain some form of blueprint for a machine. How will it end? Well, maybe you haven't seen it. I don't want to spoil it for you. I'd recommend it. It's a great view. So go out to your video stores and uh, get Contact, a great film. But one thing the film conveys is a sense of awe and excitement at receiving a message from intelligent life out there. Uh, I'm war I warn you, if you're eating food whilst you're watching it, the food will fall out of your mouth at some points. It is just like that. And therefore, it should be with an even greater sense 
of dumbstruck awe that we read the opening verses of this letter because it says something staggering. God has spoken to us. And it's not just intelligent life, it is God. It is our creator. Hebrews 1, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Now that in itself is an incredible statement. But the likelihood is, surprising like this may seem to you and I, that for those who first read it, these Jewish Christians, it probably wouldn't have caused much of a stir. They had had thousands of years of their history to get used to this stunning reality. You see, of course, the Creator God had chosen their nation Israel as his special people. And he had indeed spoken to them through prophetic messengers at various times and in various ways over hundreds and thousands of years. So you see, this news in itself wouldn't have made even the editorial in the Jewish Chronicle in Rome. But what followed would have been on the front page. Verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. You see, the Old Testament prophets, their own prophets, look forward to a time they called the last days. It was the end time when all that they prophesied would be fulfilled. It would come to pass. And the letter opens by saying, this time has now come. In these last days. They were living in them. It's the climax of salvation history. It's now arrived. God's Son has come to earth and he has spoken. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And when we look at verses 1 and 2, we actually see some quite stark contrasts. Long ago, but now in these last days. And many times in various ways, but now focused at one point in time through this one person, the Son, Jesus. By the prophets, but now by one who is God's Son. God's voice is no longer relayed by messengers, but it's been heard direct from God's mouth. The apostles' testimony was that he walked amongst us. His name is Jesus. We heard his voice. We saw his glory. Do you see the point? This is not someone you would want to turn your backs on. He is someone you want to keep trusting at all costs. Hold on to that faith in him because he is the Son of God. Through him we hear God's voice. But there's more. Jesus not only brings us God's voice, he is the heir of all things. You could say he actually stands to be the wealthiest person in the universe. The second verse continues. Verse 2. Whom he, that is God, appointed heir of all things. Now imagine. Imagine how you would feel if you stood to inherit a sizable fortune from a relative once they passed away. Um, just imagine. Such good fortune would probably generate, to put it mildly, quite a strong sense of well-being in your inner sense, would it not? 
Well, the staggering truth is that Jesus stands to inherit the universe when he returns. He's the heir at the moment, but one day when he comes back, if you like, all will be his. Uh, verse, uh, Psalm 2 looked ahead to that day when it said this. God says, You are my son. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. But there is an amazing twist in the tale. Because the New Testament assures us that if we trust in Christ, we're actually joined with him by faith. And you know what that makes us? We are described in the New Testament as co-heirs. That means we share that inheritance with him. Jesus is the one who stands to inherit the universe when he returns. And if we trust in him, we will share in that inheritance. Remember what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount? The meek, that is all who put their trust in him, will inherit what? The earth, literally, will inherit the real estate. You wouldn't want to cut your ties with Jesus. Keep trusting him at all costs. Keep going on as a Christian. But there's more. Not only is Jesus the voice of God and the heir of all things, but he's also the creator of all things. Verse 2 continues. And through him, God made the universe. You see what it's doing? Our minds are now drawn to consider the staggering power of Jesus. Uh, Just to get you into the headspace, uh, think about this. Think about the vastness of the universe. Okay, a few figures for you. Uh, Maybe you know these. Uh, The distance between the earth and the sun is 150 million kilometers. Now, if you take that distance and you express it as the thickness of a sheet of paper, then do you know how the distance between the earth and the nearest star would be represented in that paper? Be a stack of paper 27 meters high. The distance between us and the nearest star other than the sun. 27 meters high. That's incredible. But there's more. Think now about the distance across the galaxy of which we are part. In other words, the diameter of our galaxy. That would be a stack of paper 500 kilometers high. Our galaxy is vast. And yet, our galaxy is just a little speck of dust in the universe. But then, the fact that is almost beyond comprehension is that the man who walked this earth, Jesus, is also the Son of God who created the vast universe. Think about the power that resides in Jesus as the creator of the vast cosmos. It is scary. But there's still more to consider concerning Jesus' power and control because the writer goes on. Not only has Jesus created the universe, He also sustains it moment by moment. If you like, he is actively holding everything together. Verse 3 continues. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. You see, Jesus the Son keeps you and I breathing because he keeps our hearts 
beating. The precision with which the earth revolves and orbits around the sun is not chance. Jesus maintains it in that perfect orbit. The mathematical regularity of the days and the months and the years, this isn't chance. Jesus is controlling it. He is ensuring that that continues week after month after year. And he does it by his powerful word. What power he has. When that truth in some way came to impact the minds of those first century Christians, how do you think it would have helped them in their circumstance? They would be realising, wow, if the one in whom we've put our faith is that powerful, he's powerful over our situation, we can trust him. He's powerful over our future. We can trust him. We must keep trusting him. Well, uh, time does not allow us to continue to fathom the depths of what remains. Let's go very briefly over uh, what does remain. uh, Because not only is he the sustainer of the universe, but he's also the saviour of the universe. Uh, Verse 3 continues further. He had provided purification for sins. You see, through his death, we can be purified of all our sin. Jesus has the power to wipe our slate clean of everything that bars us from the presence and the blessing of God. You see, he is supreme not only in creation, but also redemption. But there's more. Not only did he die and rise again, but he ascended and was exalted. Look at the tail end of verse 3. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. You see, this very moment today, Jesus the Son is at God the Father's right hand. And you could say he is God the Father's right hand man. He shares the Father's rule. The Son may have been humiliated on earth, but now he is enthroned in heaven. And he rules supreme over the universe. And therefore it means... He is not one to turn your backs on. Because Jesus is indeed better and best than anything that has gone before and anything that has come since. So in conclusion, what is the aim of the series? The aim of the series is this. It's to help us to grow in our understanding and our sense of wonder at who Jesus is. His uniqueness. His unparalleled Almost, you could say, unfathomable greatness. Now, if you're somebody here today who is still investigating Jesus and Christ and Christianity and his claims, I'd encourage you, uh, track with us over this series. See for yourself from this letter that Christ is of supreme worth, greater than anyone and anything in your life. See that he is worthy of your trust and your devotion. And if you're somebody who already has faith in Christ, then allow this book to do its great work in your heart over the weeks ahead because God has preserved it for your benefit. Allow this wonderful letter to strengthen your appreciation of who Jesus is and the incredible privilege we have of personally knowing him. Draw on this priceless resource that strengthens you against drifting 
or ultimately ditching your faith. Because whether these dangers be a present or a future peril, we all, we all need a greater grasp of the stunning wonder of Jesus. For he is better and best than all and everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus, the one who is better and best than anything. Please, we pray, bring the wonder of who he is to our hearts in a deeper way. Uh, change our hearts, warm our hearts through this letter over the weeks ahead, we pray. And may that transform us as people. May it draw us closer to faith in Christ or to indeed to a deeper faith and joy in Christ. And do that, we pray, ultimately, for your glory. Amen.